It's good to be back with you, Crossroads. This is, uh, this is my, I think, my third time having the privilege of, of speaking here. Um, the first two, uh, Justin asked me to preach for him, were certainly legitimate reasons. I believe the first time was, was just to introduce me to Albuquerque, and that was a privilege. The second time was the, the birth of, of Deacon. Uh, this third time, though, is a little questionable. I'm going to be honest. Um, I think he's going to the Dallas Cowboys game today, and and I certainly affirm with a hearty amen everything Joel said about blessing his time with his son. I can get behind that, but I cannot get behind a Cowboys win today. So if that was in your heart while you were praying, I take back my amen. That's that's just where I'm at. Um, But it is is a joy to be back with you uh, today with the privilege and the honor of opening God's word. You all have been working uh, through the, the Paul's letter to the Philippians. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open it to Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, our passage today is actually printed in the bulletin. It's on the screen. It's all over the place. So uh, please do follow along uh, with me as I read it and then, and then open it up to us. So let's, let's look at God's Word. We're, we're in chapter 3 of Philippians. Uh, just by way of reminder, this is one of uh, Paul's epistles. The Apostle Paul is writing this to a church uh, in the first century, uh, the Philippian church was primarily made up of, of Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish people. And so he's writing this as a letter of encouragement in the faith. And we are moving into this, just this crucial, crucial passage here that when, when Justin assigned this to me, it was just, you know, the next week he's preaching through this book. It, it was just one of those passages where it's like, Lord, don't let me mess this one up. It's, it's just one of those wonderful passages of Scripture that, are, that is so important and has so many implications. So let's, let's attend to God's Word um, as we hear it read and then preached. I'll be reading uh, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and stopping in verse 16. So this is, this is the Word of the Lord. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, the word of our God, will endure forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God in heaven, we come to you now as our only source of hope. We turn to your word, which has clearly given us a portrayal of life in Christ. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm an amateur preacher of sorts. I've been in ministry for a little while, but but any decent preacher uh, worth his weight in gold will go to one place to begin his sermon, and that's where I went for this one, so I immediately went to Google. Uh, you always go to Google to find answers as you're thinking through a passage. So as I had uh, be- read through this passage several times, the first thing that came into my mind uh, was, how does the world think about being a better person? What, what is it that makes us good people? And so naturally, I go to Google, and I begin to type in how to become a better person. And, and I don't know when this invention happened. This is kind of a side note, but I have to mention it's hilarious. The invention of, of Google uh, predicting what you're going to type in, right? It's, it's, it's amazing. So I begin to type in how to become a better person, and I get to how to become a... And the first four that come up, I just have to just share them with you. No application, really. But the first four that came up were how to be a heartbreaker, a gentleman, a ninja, and a good kisser. I don't know. I don't know where that came from, but, but it really just kind of just threw me off. But then when I typed in how to become a better person was one of the top three hits. And, 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 I, and I go to the Google, and, and you know, none of us go beyond page two of the Google. It's whatever comes up on the first page you sift through. So I sift through these articles and these mostly blog posts and kind of articles here and there on, on people's views on what it means to become a better person. And you could probably guess on, on the types of things they suggest, you know, be more generous, uh, do, do things for other people, not just yourself, take time to invest in yourself, and, and just a smattering of, of self-help, kind of these pick yourself up and do these things so that you can become a better person. And one of the blogs that I came across was entitled this, it, it, said, it was called, Your Beliefs Don't Make You a Better Person, Your Behavior Does. Let me repeat that. Your beliefs don't make you a better person. Your behavior does. This, by and large, is what the world believes about being a good person. And I believe it it has come into the church on some levels. but, But it is telling us that what matters most is what we do, not what we believe. And I would suggest that as we look at this passage, the exact opposite is true. That what makes us better people is actually first and foremost what we believe which then has great implications for how we behave. That's how the entire Bible actually works. The Old Testament is not a book of how to make yourself right with God. It's actually how God has done everything to make himself right with you. And so today as we look at at Philippians chapter 3, I believe that that the the main theme that we're going to see, that it's crystal clear, and and I hope by God's grace that I can make that clear to you, is this. 
that our human credentials and our religious behavior will never make us righteous in God's sight. Our human credentials and our religious behavior will never make us right in God's sight. And so here's, here's how I kind of want to look at this passage. I'm going to um, hang it largely on three points. Uh, I'm not sure if a, a preacher's ever done a three-point sermon. We're going to give that a shot today. Um, sorry, that was a bad preacher joke. Um, uh, so we're going to look at these three points in this passage today. First, we're going to consider the danger of earned righteousness. Second, we're going to look at the source of true righteousness. And then third, we're going to look at why does this matter now? Okay, so the danger, the source, and what does it mean for us now? Um, I have had very few jobs that require me to write a resume. Uh, My resume is lacking on so many levels, um, but my wife is the best resume writer and interview taker I've ever known. And I, I think it was a ministry job. I, I couldn't really pin which job I was applying for, but, but I was writing a resume. I was trying to beef myself up on paper, right? That's what a resume is. You're making yourself look good on paper before you go in and you try to present yourself in person, right? And so Heather is, is prepping me for this, this interview. Uh, again, I don't, I don't remember what job it was, but this interview. And, and she's telling me, you know, obviously we've got my resume lined up and I, and I look pretty good on paper, but she's preparing me for the in-person part. She's preparing me for the interview. And we all know this, and I knew this, and she certainly knew this. They always ask you the two questions, right? They're the softball questions that you're supposed to go into the interview with a pat answer on, right? It's what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses, right? I mean, I don't know. Wherever they teach interviewers, if there's like an interviewing school, that's the go-to question. And so Heather, as she's training me for this interview, prepares me for those questions. And strengths, you know, we all have our strengths that we can lean on, but it's the weakness part that we're all so uncomfortable with, right? And what we've been trained to do, at least if you've been trained by my wife, what you've been trained to do for an interview on your weakness part is actually to turn that weakness into a strength, right? You kind of make it sound like it's a weakness when really you're just bragging on yourself some more. For instance, you know, I'm just terrible at multitasking. I'm just always doing everything. And I, and I just can't keep my mind. I just want to do it all, right? That kind of sounds like you're just a hard worker, right? Or, or I'm a perfectionist, right? Like, oh, I just, I love getting everything right and doing everything as it's supposed to be done. Interviewers love that. They will eat you up all day long. And so because the world thinks this way, we think that God looks at us that way. Do we, not, do we not think that, that somehow we're supposed to present on paper and in our life this resume to present before God by which we should stand or fall, by which we can present ourselves in the presence of God? And this passage, particularly in these first six verses, Paul is going to shoot that down and he's going to show us why that is so dangerous, why that is inherently dangerous for us to think about God like that. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 begins, uh, in, 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 at least in my translation, with this repetition of the lookout, lookout, lookout. Right? It's the same word in, in Greek. It's the, the word for looking, blepo. And so he's saying, and this is very strong, and we're going to see this particularly in verse 2, this strong language that Paul is trying to grab his readers by. Beware, 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 dogs, mutilators of the flesh. He's telling them, watch out for those who are 
coming in. And if you have any familiarity with, with Philippians, and particularly with Paul's letter to the Galatians, who he's talking about is this group of religious people called the Judaizers. It's kind of this fancy word. These were Jewish uh, new converts from Judaism to Christianity that had come into the church and infiltrated this new teaching that said, yes, Jesus, but also something else. And their primarily concern was the works of the law, namely circumcision. Now, without getting into the nitty-gritty of circumcision, we all know what that practice is. But religiously speaking, circumcision for the Jews, not for the Gentiles, was a mark, a physical mark in in which... Uh, stated that you belong to God's people. And so here, and in Galatians, they were saying, yes, Jesus, but also law. They were adding on to the gospel, and Paul says that's utterly taking the rug out from under it. And he says, beware, beware, beware. But then in verse 3, he, he, he makes, again, we, we don't get this out of context. He says, for we, talking about himself writing it and the readers hearing it, He says, for we are the circumcision. Let me remind you who this letter is written to. It's written to the Philippian church. And the Philippian church is filled with a bunch of previous pagans now turned Christians. And none of these Philippians were probably circumcised, physically speaking. And so what Paul is doing is he's turning this idea of we can earn God's favor of becoming part of God's people by performing rituals. You see, the Jews and the Judaizers were concerned about the circumcision of the flesh whereas God was concerned about the circumcision of the heart. And so here Paul introduces the Philippians to this idea that they are the true Israel. They are the circumcision. He goes on to say that they worship by the Spirit. They glory in Christ. They don't put confidence in the flesh. In other words, this is what true Israel does. It boasts in Christ. It worships him by the Spirit. And it does not put confidence in the flesh. And so here's Paul, a formerly Jew, a Jew of all Jews, as we'll see in a moment, telling these Gentiles that you, by faith, have come to belong to Christ and his people. But but, but Paul, praise God for Paul, but Paul in these next few verses says, but just in case you don't believe me, just in case you think you're good enough, let me flash my resume for you. And so Paul pulls out the resume. Look at the resume in in verses 4 down through 6. Paul shows his spiritual resume in two ways. He shows things that he did not earn, things that were given to him through inheritance, through the birth, through the heritage, and also things that he had earned, things that he had done, efforts that he had put forth in accomplishing the law. Look at verse 4. He says, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. Here's why. I was circumcised on the eighth day. He had nothing to do with that. He was born into the people of Israel, but not only just Israel, but the tribe of Benjamin, the only tribe that was birthed in the promised land. So those three things uh, he had nothing to do with, a Hebrew of Hebrews. But then he goes on and he says, as to the law. So those are unearned things. This is now the earned things. As to the law, a Pharisee. Those were the the strict, uptight, law-abiding citizens of, of, of the Jews. He goes on to say, as to zeal. He was a persecutor of the church. That was, he actually killed Christians to show God how strong his faith was. He continues, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I did everything that the law required. And so Paul flashes this spiritual resume before the Philippians. And he 
And he is not, he's not undermining the significance of all those things. He's not saying that the, none of those had any significance for him. But what he is saying is that his attitude towards them undermined the gospel. In other words, his attitude towards his efforts and his heritage, thought, he thought that that would stand up under God's judgment seat. He thought it was enough. He thought it would uh, prove him to be worthy of God's acceptance. What does your spiritual resume look like? We all have them. What is it that you are trusting in to put you before God's judgment throne and make you acceptable? Maybe it sounds like this. I kind of did a little anecdote on this, uh, playing off of Paul's resume. Maybe it sounds like this. I was baptized into the church of God's people in the Presbyterian tribe. As to good works, I'm a good Samaritan. As to zeal, I am a faithful community group member. And as to righteousness, I'm all around a pretty good guy. I do the best I can. I think that that, perhaps, is a common resume that that many of us share in this room. That we hold on to that and we think that will make us presentable to God. But the danger of an earned righteousness like that and like Paul's, is that it does two things. First and foremost, I think, it makes us feel superior to others. It believes that God judges on the scale system, that if I'm not that terrible axe murderer, you know, rapist, that that if I'm not that guy, if I'm just a little better than him, then certainly God will accept me. If I'm just good enough, if I'm better than him, If I'm better than her, look how I'm raising my family. Certainly God will not condemn me. So it makes us feel superior and better. But I think also, and this is more subtle, it also makes us feel insecure. Because at the end of the day, when you pull out your resume, is it enough? Will it be enough? Will it be good enough for you? Have I done enough? Have I done all of the right things? And I think when we're honest with ourselves and when we look within the crevices of our heart, we will all respond with a resounding no. And that's a problem. So that's the danger of an earned righteousness. Well, let's now look at the source of a true righteousness. The source of a true righteousness in verses 7 down through 11. Uh, my wife and I, or my family and I, we like to travel. Uh, we don't get to do any, we get to do some good travel. Our, our families are extremely generous, and we've gotten to go to some exotic places. But the funny thing about us traveling is no matter where we are, and this is probably because it's the initial contact with the, the vacation, but no matter where we are, the most exciting part for certainly my, my boys, but, but even also for Heather and I, is always the hotel. Okay, we get to the hotel and it's, I mean, that's the official feel of vacation, right? You kind of throw the luggage in, you're checking it out, you're removing the comforter and the remote control. Um, that's just personal thing of mine with hotels. But, but you're, you get to the hotel and you, ha- you begin your experience of vacation. And um, I, I, I forewarned my wife that she was going to be in a couple of these illustrations today, so she knows these are coming. But, but, but my wife and I have completely different views of hotel room service. Okay, hotel room service is fantastic. Listen, hotel rooms, they they will clean up your mess for you, right? 
You can leave your room, I think, pretty much in any condition you want. Go out for the day, come back, and it's like, whoa, how'd that happen? Not my wife. My wife likes to pre-clean for the room service. Right? Like, I try to make a little extra mess. Like, the boys dropped a cookie. Oh, I stepped on it. That, you know, oh, man, someone's going to clean that up. Not my wife. We will tidy up the room, make sure everything's out of the way, the bathroom's cleared up, everything's ready to be cleaned. And that, that's just not how I view uh, hotel room service, because here's how I think of it. I think of it, and I think it has some, some great gospel implications, is that you leave the mess, and then they clean up the rest, right? I mean... That's how it's supposed to work. And, um, and, and I think that, that in, in our Christian circles, sometimes we think that we have to kind of do that pre-cleanup work before God can really do his work of cleaning us up, right? We think that perhaps, I think there's two veins of this. There's, there's some people, and this is not in my family, that, that hang up the door hanger and say, don't come in. Like, do not come clean this up. I don't want you to mess with my stuff. You're probably going to steal my iPad. Don't come in here. And, and there's some of, there's, there's that vein. And that is, God, I will take care of everything myself. I'll clean, up, I'll clean up this mess. But I think there are others of us, and I think this is probably more common, that do the pre-cleanup service. Like, well, I kind of need to get my act together before God can really work. I need to clean myself up a little bit, and then God can kind of take care of the rest. Well, <clears throat> This passage, and particularly in verses 7 through 11, uh, God is showing us that he requires nothing more than us knowing that we need to be clean. He requires nothing more than us feeling that need to be cleansed, to be relieved of our filth, to be uh, uh, just uh, free from the guilt and the shame that we have brought upon ourselves. And, and as he does this, he, he reverses everything he just wrote on his resume. He reverses everything beginning in in verse 7. He says, everything I've gained, everything, all that I've done by birth, heritage, by earning my way uh, through the the ranks of Judaism, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered this and count them as rubbish. If you've ever read through this passage or you have a Bible stud, a study Bible or you've read through a commentary, you know this word rubbish is, is a bit of a vulgar word. It's a Christian cuss word. It, it, it means trash or garbage or take it to the further levels. Paul's using this word for shock value. He's saying everything I've done is trash. It's rags. It's garbage. And he says because I can embrace that, that two things have come from that reality. Two things have come, and they are this. One is that I have a true righteousness, and the second is that I can have true change and true transformation. Look at the way Paul talks, and and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna get a little bit um, kind of wordy here. Um, I think this section is really important to clear up a few terms. So this might feel a little jargony, a little teachy. Um, so. Bear with me through this. Let's look at this passage together. But I really want us to, to feel what he's saying. Um, in verse um, 8, particularly at the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9, let's just look at the end of verse 8. He says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So one of the results is that, that Paul and, and, and Christians by extension, we would gain Christ and be found in him. 
And he extends that statement by saying that this righteousness does not come from himself, but it's a righteousness that depends on faith. It depends on faith. And so here, Paul is communicating to us this concept of we are determined righteous, that is a good and perfect and pleasing person in God's sight by one means and one means alone, faith in Christ. That there is nothing that Paul has done and there is nothing that you will do that will ever give you that righteousness that all of us need. This righteousness is legal. That is, it is a declaration from God on our judicial standing in his sight. That God, as our maker and as our creator, has every just and reasonable right to judge us and condemn us. Yet in Christ, by faith, he's giving us a declaration that we've been not only forgiven, but declared righteous. And so this is an external, this is an outside, this is a foreign righteousness that does not belong to us by earning it, and it does not belong to us inherently. I use that word inherently because there are some... And we won't really throw out camps of theology or or denominations outside of the Christian circle. But there are some that believe that this declaration actually is communicated to you and I through things like the the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it comes into us. That is, it changes us and actually inherently makes us righteous. And God is saying that this righteousness is actually outside of us. In other words, when God looks at us, a sinner, in the sight of God, he sees Christ covering us. And so that's what Paul means when he's saying we gain Christ and we're found in him. Everything about the Christian life is about being united to Christ and what he's done for us. And so while that has so many implications on our salvation, on our, um, our right standing before God when we face his judgment seat, it has so many more about our relational aspect with God. Uh, there were a couple narratives that haunted me this week as I, as I prepared for this, and one of them was the prodigal son. If you're familiar with the prodigal son, it's actually a story about two sons. There's the, the, the wicked one who sold, squandered everything away, went and lived the life, and then there's the righteous son. Well, kind of quick summary of that. At the end of the day, when that squandering son comes home, the father runs to him. He runs, and what does he do? He covers him, right? He takes off his, his royal robe, and he puts his ring on him, and he hugs him, and he loves him. And that is the picturesque uh, narrative of for what is taking place when we express faith in Christ. The father doesn't just say, okay, you're good to go now. Do what you want. He says, come to me, son. He says, come into my presence, daughter. He says, experience the warm embrace you've always been longing for. That's to gain Christ and to be found in him. The second thing that Paul says, and this is primarily in verses 10 through 11, is that the implications of this source of true righteousness is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. In other words, that, that there is something experiential and there is something very real about this exchange of righteousness that God gives us. That this is not, just not pie in the sky, okay, I'm going to be all right when I die, 
righteousness. This is a righteousness that will change you forever. And so this language of knowing Christ and his power speaks to that personal relationship of walking with the risen and living Christ in our day-to-day affairs. That Paul, as he's walking through these streets, as he's preaching and proclaiming the good news about Jesus, suffering persecution upon persecution upon persecution, is saying it is knowing Christ and living with him in his power that changes everything about us. Verses 7 through 11, and this idea of being made right with God simply by trusting in what Christ has done for us, changes everything about us. It tells us that we are not partners with God in this project of redemption. Now, our next point is going to talk about kind of the role that this has for us and how we can respond to it. But you need to hear this today. That God alone saves through Christ alone by faith alone. And faith is a gift from our God. Faith is not some quasi work that you must muster up because it is not the strength of your faith that will save you. It is the object of your faith that will save you, namely Christ. And so he shows us, Paul deliberately, intentionally, and clearly shows us That the righteousness that you want and the righteousness that God requires is found in one source and one source alone. Faith in Christ. The second narrative that haunted me this week uh, from, from the gospel narratives was the thief on the cross. Again, if you're familiar with the gospel narratives, Jesus on the, the hill of Calvary, he dies between two thieves. So there are three people being crucified that day. And there are clearly two responses by each of those thieves. One of them looks at Jesus and mocks him. He says, listen, if you're the son of God, take yourself and me off of this cross and do something about this. He utterly mocked Jesus to his face. Yet the other one says, this truly is the son of God. And in this simple moment on the cross, on 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 just this most simple expression of faith in Christ... Jesus responds to him this way. He says, he looks at this this sinner, this wicked thief who had probably just run a turmoil of trouble his entire life. And he looks at this criminal and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, if that doesn't offend you, I don't know what does. This man had lived a life of faithlessness of utter rebellion, of garbage, and Jesus welcomes him into his kingdom? My prayer for Crossroads and for our church plant is that we would believe a doctrine of truth like this that says God can save anybody. That God can save the filthy and the wretched and the broken. And if we become a church that sees ourselves in that light, we become a church that can welcome others into that gospel truth. Because the true source of righteousness is faith in Christ, even simple expressions of faith. That man on that cross could not have passed one of our membership classes. He couldn't. But Christ welcomed him into his kingdom. So why does this all matter now? 
Look at verses 12 to 16. When you read your Bibles, um, don't always think that the breaks in your Bibles really, uh, they're not inspired by God. So for instance, in my Bible, there's a break between verse 11 and 12. It kind of sections it off for us. That's not inspired. So this is one letter on one scroll. And so Justin and I actually kind of struggled through this. Where does this thought end? And we actually think it ends in verse 16. So kind of if you're reading in your Bible, you probably have a break there, but that's not inspired. So take it as a suggestion. But, but I want us to look in verses 12 to 16 at, at why this why this matters now. Um, I hope I have not been unclear about the eternal significance of this. And maybe I have, so let me be very clear about this. This, this belief that God justifies, we'll talk about that in a minute, or, or makes us right with God simply by trusting in what Christ has done for us has all of the eternal implications ever. Obviously, when we die or when Christ returns, God will return in judgment. And you will either flash a lacking spiritual resume that will ultimately condemn you, or you will flash the works of Christ before God, and he will accept you. And so those are clearly the eternal implications. And if you have not heard that or responded to that, I will give you an opportunity to do that when we, when we conclude this. But I want us now, just for a, just a moment, this is going to be a little briefer, kind of think about the significance that this has for us now. That, that blog that I mentioned at the very beginning entitled, um, or, yeah, your beliefs don't make you a better person, but your behavior does. And I'm suggesting the exact opposite is true, that actually your beliefs do make you a better person, not your behavior only. I think that that, that rises and falls on something like this. Because the, the, the truth is, is that we do what we believe. We act on how we think. Everything about our information tells us how we should live. Everything about our worldview tells us how we should respond and react in this world. But the hardest thing about a truth like this is for it to travel the longest distance ever, and that is from our heads to our hearts. The longest distance a truth will ever travel is from your head to your heart. And that is something that I cannot do as a preacher or your elders cannot do as your spiritual mentors. That is something God Almighty by his spirit must and will do. But if you're hearing me right today about this idea of being made right with God simply by trusting in Christ, there are two pitfalls that can happen. And Paul really addresses both of those in verses 12 to 16. 16. Here's, the pit, here's the pitfall number one. Pitfall number one is licentious living. Well, if this is true, I can do whatever I want. I'm going to trust in Christ and live how I want. Licentious living is not justified by this truth, okay? The other pitfall and the, the other extreme is this idea that, that we, can, we, we have to attain this sinless standard. That, oh, yes, God is, he's made me right. He's declared me righteous. I've put my faith in Christ, and, and now I, I kind of have to keep those standards and maintain those standards, and Paul actually refutes both of those ideas in verses 12 to 16. He says, listen, he, he gets very personal. The language here is, is extremely personal. He says, I haven't already obtained this, and I'm not already perfect. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. So in other words, he, he begins this idea of pressing forward to make what God has declared become a reality in his own living. And so he's moving towards this, this prize. He uses this, this race imagery 
Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, um, I I don't think there's any famous videos, but you've seen several of these racing videos where the guys kind of coast in at the end, right? Like, I don't know, it seems to be mostly college guys, I don't know. Um, Anyway, they're kind of at the end of the race, they they do a little glance and they think they're good and they just ease up and they kind of cruise in and then the guy comes blazing past them and then they're like, oh, how did that happen? I, you know, I gave up too early. Well, that's what, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, I don't look behind to what's going on behind me. I'm not worried about the distance that I've traveled. I'm not worried about all the religious things that I've done or attainments that I've achieved. But I press on towards the goal, towards the prize. And what is the prize? He's pressing on towards the prize of the, the, the verse here says, the upward call of God in Christ at the end of verse 14. That's just really, that's just really tough language. Um, what is the upward call of God in Christ? Um, Let me just kind of, let me try to communicate it this way. Every time the Bible talks about being called, it's always being called out of something and into something by God. And most of the time, I don't have really any fancy statistics on this, but most of the time it is about God calling someone out of the world and into his body, into his people, namely into his church. And so Paul uses this imagery of a race where he's running towards this and he's running towards the prize of belonging to God's people. And while that certainly has eternal and heavenly uh, thoughts uh, surrounding it, more so it has earthly and now implications for us. Um, we are a church, uh, in our, we're in a denomination, I don't know if Justin talks about this much, but I'm a guest speaker, so take it up with him next week. But we, we belong to a denomination, the Presbyterian Church in, in America. And part of our, our tradition and part of our history is that we are a, what we call a confessional church. In other words, we have documents that, that communicate what our standards of belief are. And part of our confession of faith is what we call the Shorter Catechism. Shorter Catechism was, it's, a, it's an ancient document, 16th century-ish, um, and it was used as a tool for children. Um, so maybe some of you use this with your children, maybe you don't. Um, but it's a question and answer format, and they are just so helpful because it helps us to think through kind of some of our doctrine. But, but two of the questions in our, in our catechism It talks about justification, and it talks about sanctification. These huge, huge theological words. Some of you know what they mean, others of you don't. But the catechism really breaks it up well, and and it talks about justification. In other words, this, this idea of God making us righteous that we've been talking about in this passage. Justification, it says, is an act, an act of God's free grace wherein he justifies us uh, only by the righteousness of Christ given to us through, 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 through faith alone. And so it, it talks about justification being an act. But it intentionally uses, when it talks about sanctification, it uses the word work. It says sanctification is a work of God's free grace, wherein he renews the whole man after his image, allowing us more and more to die into sin and to live into righteousness. And so that distinction is so important for us today. Hear me on this. Your being made right with God is an act of God, a one-time declaration upon placing your faith in Christ. It's an act of God. But your sanctification, that is, your being made more and more like Jesus, is a work of God. It is a work that is worked out in community. It is a work that's worked out by his spirit and through his word. But it is a work. It is a process. And it is a race. 
And that's what Paul's describing for us today. And so we're running this race towards the prize. Um, There is no doubt about the Bible's clarity about our condition. Our condition is, is depraved. We fail at every given opportunity, and it's since the, the outset of mankind, from the Garden of Eden forward, as Joel mentioned earlier, sin has been our greatest plague. I don't think many sit in here and look around the world around us and say that sin's not a problem, but more so than the world around us, what's going on inside of us. And so the Bible presents this problem, this idea that, that we are fallen and we cannot get up, that we have hurt ourselves and others to the point that we cannot make it right. But the the, the Bible also makes it very clear that God demands perfection. God is a perfect, holy, just, and righteous God, and he would be completely unjust, unholy, and unrighteous were he just to take up the rug and just say, ah, come on in. It's not that big a deal. I'll just, just come on in. His demands are clear, but the means by which God will make us right have been oh so clear to us and that's through the the great exchange on the cross. When you think about your inclination to want to be a better person, you must know that even your best will never be good enough. And so when we think about Christ on his cross, what we see is God displaying his view towards our efforts, towards our religiosity, towards our hopes that we can earn his acceptance, and it's despicable. And so what we see is is Jesus on the cross taking everything that should have come to us, taking the fullness of God's cup of wrath and drinking it down to the dregs, down, 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 all the way, satisfying everything God demanded of you and God demanded of me. And in exchange for him taking that, he gives us everything that he earned, namely righteousness, that Christ never faltered, he never failed, and he gives that to you and me by faith alone. And so today, let me just leave you with these lingering questions, and, and there too, are you trusting in Christ, or are you trusting in your own credentials? It's very simple. There are two types of people that live in this world, those that trust in Christ, and those that trust in themselves. If you've ever been to a church service and you've ever um, experienced some sort of altar call, we're Presbyterians, so we don't really do that. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I do want to give you a, a chance to respond. And typically those responses sound like this. I'm kind of stereotyping here, but stop being a bad person, start being a better person and follow Jesus. And I'm going to flip the, flip the script on us because I think most of you, I'm assuming most of you actually have heard the gospel, and I'm actually assuming most of you are Christians. And I want you today to do this. I want you to stop being so good. Repent of your goodness and trust in Christ. Because that's what Paul did. He turned away from trusting in his own credentials, his own efforts, and he turned to Christ, the only source of true righteousness. Would you consider that an invitation today? Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, there is nothing greater than hearing the reality that you have provided a way for us to be righteous. Lord, we try so hard 
We want to do better, be better people. And Lord, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But when our attitude is that, will make us stand before you, Lord. Remove that from us. Lord, would you help us to see Christ today? Um, perhaps there's some today that this is brand new to them. Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would stir in their hearts to explore more of what it means to be in Christ. There are others who have been in Christ by faith for many years, but that does not change uh, their need for the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see him clearly, and to run to him fervently, and to cling to him forever. Lord, we thank you for loving us the way that you do, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.